Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at another Next Level Brands Podcast. Our podcast today is brought to you by Next Level Brands CPG Community, a merger of the experience of Next Level Marketing and the educational resources of Kitchen to Shelf. The Next Level Brands community brings together CPG entrepreneurs at all stages of growth, providing knowledge, training, courses, and networking, not only with fellow entrepreneurs, but also key partners in the industry, including packaging, finance, and e-commerce. More details available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. Hi, I'm Steve Clear, and we've got a great show for you today because we're going to be talking about money, investment money, actually and about funds and how they look at opportunities out there and how you might want to relook at your brand to become an opportunity. With me today is Les Hine. Les is the CEO of Once Ventures and also the Executive Vice President of Atsuku Nutraceuticals Global Strategy and Planning. How big is Les's business card? His background, however, is deep in consumer packaged goods, including Procter & Gamble, Molson, and Pharmavite, which most of you know as the Nature's Made brand of vitamins and supplements. Welcome to the show, Les. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for having me. So, uh, so it sounds like it sounds like you kind of have two jobs. So, yeah. on, on one hand, a, a kind of a straight day CPG job, and on the other hand, once ventures. Can you talk to us a little bit about about that? Yeah, a little bit. Um, so, one of the great things working with a Japanese company, which Otsuka is, they're they're based in Tokyo, is that they um, they keep uh, job definitions pretty wide. And uh, it's interesting. I've actually sometimes have had conversations with my boss, who's the CEO in Japan, about, you know, is this okay? I mean, is this as defined as it should be? And his response is, you know, your job is to grow the business of Otsuka in North America. And as long as you're doing that, you should feel comfortable. So that, which is a really refreshing and wonderful thing, particularly at the stage of the career I'm at. I love that kind of autonomy and that, uh, that responsibility as well to, to really bring forward my best ideas rather than waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. So that part's great. So basically, you know, the way I would define it is um, the team and I have a job of saying, you know, where should the North American nutraceutical business be uh, 10 years from now, or maybe even longer, but let's say 10 years. And then what do we need to do to get there? Yeah, is that a major acquisition? Is it launching a new brand? Is it um, partnering with a startup? or a early stage company and growing with them. And then eventually, if they're interested and we continue to be interested, purchasing them or, you know, then based on that learning, choosing to do our own brand later. So it's, it's a pretty broad canvas and uh, we've done a number of different things. We've, um, we were behind the uh, acquisition of Dea, which is a uh, plant-based cheese company. Uh, we yep. purchased that on behalf of Otsuka in 2017. We assisted our firm by colleagues in purchasing a company called Eucora uh, a few weeks ago. It's a, uh, a product designed for urinary tract infections, which will now be owned by Pharmavice. And uh, at the same time, we've done things such as looked at the opportunity to launch Nature Made in China, um, which is a totally different thing, uh, but uh, would be right. helpful to you know not only our China business, but also you know certainly would help our North American business in terms of capacity utilization and so forth. So we, we, um, we get a pretty broad spectrum of opportunities. And the way we thought about venture capital, which is new for us, is, you know, um, is that there's a pretty big gap between buying a company like Dale, let's say, you know, where we paid in excess of $300 million, 
um, where you're buying a, a very strong management team, a strong brand, a manufacturing facility, et cetera. Right. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got launching new brands from scratch. And quite candidly, launching new brands from scratch has proven to be difficult for us. And I would say it's been difficult for a lot of big CPG companies, and I'm sure you're familiar with that as well, Steve, that people have really struggled to have success with new brands. And you've looked at, I'm sure, the yeah. success rates, they're low, they're poor. Oh, oh of, of course, yeah. And, and, and acquisitions even of brands has not, yeah, you know, is not always a piece yeah. of cake either. Yeah, yeah 100% yeah. right. So what we said was, look, you know, we have, we've, been, we've been fortunate, I think, with our acquisitions. We haven't made a lot, but we've, you know, over the last, I guess, 30 years, Otsuka has acquired, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four now, um, you know, nutraceutical businesses in North America. And all of those have, have grown significantly. Um, Dea, for example, which we bought in 2017, is about twice the size of when we bought it. Uh, Pharmavi, which we bought 30 years ago, is about 11 times the size of when we acquired it. So we've been fortunate um, to found some good businesses and been able to patiently grow them. Um, that's not to say we'll, you know, that we have a perfect track record. I think we've done okay there. Where we haven't done as well as we wanted is launching new brands. We've tried some things. Um, and some of this predates me, but we've tried some things. Done our best, had some smart, good people working on it, but, but candidly, you know, not a great success uh, rate on that. So what we said was, why don't we try something that falls in the middle of those? Uh, rather than trying to do the greenfield work of identifying a brand, mm-hmm. identifying a need, et cetera, why don't we work with people who've already done that, but could benefit from our capital, obviously, um, but also our expertise. You know, uh, we know some things about supplements. You know, we have the biggest supplement brand in the United States with Nature Made. Uh, we know something about beverages. We have beverages companies, you know, around the world. Uh, we have, uh, you know, some knowledge of uh, plant-based food, obviously, with the data company. And so, you know, the combination of our, um, of our patient capital and our expertise in being operators in some of these categories might be attractive to those folks. And so that, that was the premise. Um, you know, why don't we learn? Uh, why don't we learn from them, um, develop our network of smart entrepreneurs and, you know, their, their support networks of great suppliers. At the same time, I think we bring something to the party too, beyond just a checkbook. And uh, that was the proposition to our leadership in Japan. And that's the proposition now to the marketplace, you know, as we go out in the market. And, yeah, and, and going back a little bit less to, to some of your comments in the beginning, which I, I think from a corporate sort of corporate culture standpoint for um, for a number of years in my agency career, my client was Honda mm-hmm. America, Honda America. Okay. And, yeah. and they decided to get into the lawnmower business, which everybody knows now. But at that point, there were no Honda lawnmowers. It was power equipment. There was ATVs or motorcycles, obviously, cars, mm-hmm. but yep. lawnmowers. Um, when we sat down as the agency with the marketing folks, they talked about, a five-year plan, which is perfectly fine with them. I mean, they they said, sure. you know, this is what we're looking at. Year one, we're going to do this and we're going to learn. Year two, we're going to do this. And year five, by the way, we're going to have a 20% share of the market. Mm-hmm. But that's a luxury that so many big CPG or big industrial people in the US don't have because it's next quarter, maybe next right. year, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe you got a year. And you're sitting down going, oh, yeah, we know we're not going to do anything for a couple of years, but we're going to learn and we'll take share. It will take share. 
And this is where we're going to be in five years. Everybody agreed? Yes. Okay. We're yeah. going to go forward. And, and, and that's a, you know, that that's an amazing thing to do. Um, the other part is, and and so folks that in, in the audience, um, it's not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to sell your brand for 300 million, although you might. Um, but the idea of, of looking at companies that have done the groundwork, the validity, and maybe have even a strong brand within that, because there's lots of opportunities out there for products that perform and what else, but they may not have that quote unquote brand yet um, to look at. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm sure, you know, you've been to expos and, you know, hopefully we're going to go to some more sometime. Yeah. Um, so. uh, right. Of looking at that and saying, wow, you know, that's got great, nice packaging. It's got, you know, uh, whatever. And, and there's a chance let's talk about the e- euphoric for a minute. So is euphoric going to remain or is euphoric going to get put into nature's made? Uh, Eucora. Uh, it's going to stay as a Eucora product, um, branded as Eucora. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I suppose there's the opportunity down the road that some of the technology that they develop may end up in a nature-made product that, that's not currently on the books, but I can't discount it. You know, that at some point uh, there may be some crossover product that made sense for both parties. But right now, the intention is to keep it as a separate standalone brand. Um, and I, really, I, I just got to go back, if I may, for one second to what you said, Steve, about the, the five-year plan. You know, that's what I find so refreshing about the business I'm working in as well. Um, you know, I've, I've been asked questions, you know, in meetings like, well, you know, what will that community look like in 20 years? Like, really? <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never been asked that before. You almost feel like you're on candid camera for a second, but you realize, no, they're serious. They want to know what the long term is. And I find that incredibly refreshing because, you know, I've, worked, I've had the privilege of working for some what I consider great companies in, in North America. You know, just super smart, you know, talented companies like P&G and others who obviously have a big reputation. Um, but yeah, um, they have, you know, they're driven a lot by shorter term perspectives. It's not like they're not smart enough to understand, you know, the long term outlook, but they have some real deliverables. And uh, if you can find an environment where you have a little more freedom to take a longer approach, uh, boy, is that productive. And, you know, just hammering a little bit longer on that thing. Um, one of the things that we see is that, uh, you know, you've heard the old expression, it took me, you know, 10 years to become an overnight success, something like <laughs> yeah. that. I mean, yeah, we see that with a lot of these companies now that are coming on our radar. You know, the, the lady or the gentleman who started the company it didn't do it last year, even the year before. They've been doing this for five or six or seven years and have just now gotten to the point where they're viable, large enough and interesting enough to want to, you know, be considered for an investment. And so it's hard for, but it's hard for big CPG companies to stick with a product for five, six, seven years if it's not making numbers. You, oh. know, you want to have one yeah. year, you want to see something two years for sure. After three years, if it's not making it, it's, you know, it's off the price list and you're on something else. Yeah. And, and, and the other, the curse we kind of live with is uh, uh, CPG is a very capital intensive business. Um, I mean, just, you know, whether it's, you know, raw materials, production, labor, um, you know, and if you're in refrigerated or frozen, you know, anything that has any type of, of uh, restriction that way, it's just, a, it, it's, it, it takes major investment to even get anything, you know, sort of off the ground. Um, and so looking as, and again, I guess you have a broad definition of what nutraceuticals certainly can be out there. We're at a, a wonderful time, at least for, I think, innovation in the category. There's a lot of things being explored out there. There is an emphasis because of the pandemic, there's more of an emphasis on health and, 
and uh, everybody, well, at least, you know, five of the last 10 people I've talked to have talked about gut health. You know, it's like <laughs> we never talked about gut health for years. Now the prebiotics, probiotics, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, we, we to do all this. Um, we just uh, last week, no, two weeks ago, announced that we invested in the prebiotics company. So, I, yep, we can talk about that, too, if you like. A- a- absolutely. So let's but let's talk about that as you're looking at that. If that, and not saying the playbook's twenty years long, but you're, but as you're looking out there right now, there's, there's, I'll call it the the waves. So there's the wave of this and the wave of that, and they kind of all hit the shore. What do you see right now out there trending, and uh, and and then how? No, let's do that first. Let's do that first, and I'll come back to my second. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know we're interested. We're primarily interested in four categories: supplements, active nutrition, or some people call it sport nutrition. Um, healthy beverages and uh, and healthy food, mostly plant based food. Yeah. And uh, you know, in plant based food, I mean, I think it's no secret. And you know, I, I listened to the podcast, and you just had a gentleman on who was also in the plant based cheese business uh, recently. Yes. Um, yep. The uh, you know uh, we're still we think we're in I don't know what you would call it, probably second inning if you want to use a baseball metaphor of that business. Um, the consumer interest is growing so quickly. Uh, and, you know, it's not just um, people who have allergies, it's not just people who, have, um, who are vegans or vegetarians, it's everybody. It's what, you know, is commonly referred to as fluxitarians. And perhaps you see that in your own household, you know, certainly, I mean, we had a steak last night. We don't have them very often. We had a really good steak, but we don't have any dairy milk in our fridge and haven't had dairy milk for two years. So, you know, there's, there's a group of people who have decided, you know, that, that certain trade-offs are, are acceptable for health and for the planet uh, and for sustainability. And we think that uh, dairy is certainly a big one. Um, and we believe that that category has tremendous upside. And so it's not a secret to many. There's lots of people that are getting into this business now, but we fortunately got in about four years ago. And uh, we think there's just a wonderful um, future for plant-based foods in general, particularly plant-based dairy analogs. And of course, the plant-based meat analog is, you know, a category which is well understood and discussed by many others. But uh, we love that business. We think plant-based is uh, is a long story. We're at the very early stages of it, both in terms of size, but also capabilities. Um, the products just get better and better. You know, I stayed on the board of Daya, and uh, yeah. we get a chance to sample some of the stuff the guys are working on, and and it's it's really good. You know, it, yeah, it's it not a really, substitute. It's not yeah. a substitute. Yeah, it's not like you're trading down yeah. and saying, okay, you know, I have to eat this because I, you know, have a yeah. commitment to the planet or whatever else. You don't feel like you've made a trade-off. You feel like you've uh, made a good choice, uh, but it's very acceptable in its own merits. So we like that category a lot. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we like supplements. Um, we've been in the business for over 30 years now. Well, we're going to business for over 30 years in the U.S. So the category grew tremendously last year, a lot of it being driven by immunity. But we think there's some very interesting things emerging. Um, sleep has become a very big part of the of the category now, uh, as yeah. and you know that's I think a function of many things. But one of them is the stress that people have endured over the last couple of years through the pandemic and all the disruption that that's caused. Um, and you know, about five years ago, five years, yeah, something like that, maybe seven. We identified probiotics and prebiotics as a new wave. Um, candidly, it has grown, but not grown quite as quickly as we would originally expect. But I, I continue to believe, as it sounds like other people you've talked to have as well, that that is a uh, category which uh, will continue to grow as the science catches up. There's a lot of 
as I'm sure you've heard, Steve, there's a lot of anecdotal, um, and we think this is true, stuff happening in terms of the connection between gut health and yeah. weight management, yep. gut health and immunity, et cetera, but, but very difficult to prove. Um, so they very smart people believe it, but they haven't got a clinical, you know, blind clinical that can prove that to you yet. We think no. that's going to come. Yeah, we think that's going to come. And so we continue to want to be long in, in probiotics. And so, as I mentioned, we bought a piece of a, uh, a prebiotic company recently uh, who has a one gram uh, efficacious prebiotic fiber compared with other people need to have between five and 20 grams. So we think it's a great opportunity to integrate it into food and beverages and so forth because it's, uh, it has a very small footprint. It's still efficacious. So we, we like that story a lot. Um, active nutrition, re- another really interesting category, you know, was... yes you know, was bodybuilders, was, you know, guys that hung out at the gym um, 10 years ago has become kind of more like a meal replacement business in many ways. Uh, you know, protein shakes instead of having bacon and eggs for breakfast, um, yeah. power bar instead of, you know, uh, a sandwich for lunch. And uh, has become, uh, has moved up market in terms of uh, demographics, in terms of income, et cetera, has become very balanced between male, female, um, we, we like that business a lot. We don't have an entry in North America. We'd love to find one. Uh, we do have entries in, uh, in uh, we do have an entry in Europe and in some parts of Asia. Uh, we're willing to be patient and we'll, we'll look for the right opportunity. But we, we think that business uh, has a lot of legs as well. It was growing uh, up until the pandemic. It was growing about eight to 9% a year, which yeah. and then, the package goes is good. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Yes. I, 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 I had my midday squares for, for lunch and okay. a company I, I follow great, but it's true. It's, it's um, you know, it, 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 you feel better about it and it, it is going to, I think, again, as we return to whatever the new normal is going to be, I think that that's going to come back in a, in a big way. Um, but the other aspect that from a marketing standpoint is a little bit challenging less is a lot of the, uh, whether it's paleo, keto, or some combination thereof, um, even even vegan to a certain extent, is it used to be kind of the dietetic choices fell along demographic lines, mm-hmm. right? You, you knew that the person who was buying organics probably also wore Birkenstocks. Yep. Um, yep. And was above average income and probably had a college degree. Exactly. We, you yep. know, in, in, in launching an organic tea line, you know, we went through all of, uh, with, with Good Earth, we went through all of the demographics we could, and we found out that the number one indicator of whether or not you would be a considered a purchaser for organic tea was your level of education. It wasn't your mm. income, but it was your level of education. So it's like, well, I can at least narrow that down. Now, I take that today to a product that's keto friendly. And I go, I can't draw that demographic anymore. It, that's not the way it's working. It's cutting across all kinds of sociological and demographic lines where you have construction workers who are keto mm-hmm. right? or paleo. And by the same token, that you know, you've got a college professor somewhere and he or she is keto. Uh, so it's tougher from a marketing standpoint to talk to those people, to reach those people. Because the job, yeah, the job of a marketer has become infinitely more difficult as these yeah. categories splinter as media proliferates. You know, you see so much easier when you can just buy, going way back when you could buy network TV and believe you're going to hit 20, 30, 40% right. of your audience. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, and out of those households, well, you know, I have a household penetration of, you know, whatever, 75%. I'm good. 
what's mm-hmm. what's the deal? Um, let, let me ask you, you know, because uh, again, a lot of the, the folks who are in the audience are, you know, entrepreneurs, a lot of them are looking for funds or whatever else, but talk a little bit about, you know, what, when you're not necessarily when you're looking for the fund, but, but you can include that too, but what do people out there really need to know about putting together something when they're seeking funding? Yeah, happy to answer that, Steve, the way we look at it. And I don't know that we look at it much differently than our colleagues. We have some very you know, competent colleagues that we talk to frequently. And I think we probably, uh, our template wouldn't look a lot different than theirs. But let me, let me share with you the way we think about a business. Um, firstly, we say, you know, it, it, it has to be an attractive category. The, the category has to be large enough that you um, believe that there is room for a substantial business there. And uh, that usually has not only a largeness element to it, but also a profitability element to it. You know, uh, to take the flip side of that, um, you know, flat screen TVs, very large category. Apparently, the the margins in some cases are single digits, uh, gross margin. So not not attractive in my opinion, but, uh, you know, so is it an attractive category? And, you know, what I would say is um, a lot of the, the, the pitches, a lot of the, you know, proposals that we see do a pretty good job of covering this. They lay out the case for, you know, why this is an attractive category and why their idea, um, if they're able to execute it, uh, you know, would be interesting in that category. You know, the next thing we talk about is differentiated product. And product is a broad term. It can be um, a physical product. It could be a website. It could be a service. But something which is, you know, um, different than in some meaningful way uh, what's already being offered in the category. Um, the third one is um, a strong management team. And um, that's super important in any business, but it's really important in a business where we're making a minority investment. You know, if we own the business, you know, let's go back to, I mentioned we purchased Daya in 2017, which wasn't a a venture capital, it was an M&A purchase, but bear with me, let me use that as an an analogy. Um, You know, we love the management team. There's a very strong team up there. But, you know, could we have bought the business and then changed the management team if we just loved the business but didn't like the team? Yeah, we could. Uh, once you own 100% of the business, you can do as you please. It comes with some, some strife and some grief, but you can go ahead and change the business leadership if you need to, if you own the business. In venture capital investing, you don't own the business. You own a small part of the business. And you, are, you want to be comfortable that you really think the management team that you have, by and large, is the right team to take it to the next level. And, uh, you know, there's, that may sound obvious to folks, but more often than not, when, you know, I would say at least half the time when we choose not to look at a business uh, in depth, it's because we can't get comfortable if the management team are the right ones to take the business to the next level. Oftentimes, because it was, frankly, it was a group that was put together as, you know, a bunch of guys or a bunch of people who knew each other in school and had an idea and got it to a certain level but may not have the experience and the credentials to make it a much bigger business. And so that's something we look at is, you know, is the management team able to scale? Are they people who demonstrate that passion, but also learning capability to grow as the business grows? And then the last thing we look at is, you know, who else is in? Uh, We like to co-invest, you know, in the business, in the deal we talked about earlier for the probiotic company. You know, we have some other sophisticated co-investors and, you know, that gives us comfort that um, on two fronts. One is that they're going to bring something to the party as well and also builds our network and allows us then to look at future investments together because we develop a relationship through this investment. So in summary, I'd say, you know, four basic categories. Is the category attractive? 
Is the product that they're offering, whatever that product is, uh, different enough? Is the team strong enough and does that show the ability to grow? And then lastly, uh, who else is going to invest and are they going to add something to the company as well? Um, and I would say, you know, my experience is a lot of the decks we see, um, people do, as I mentioned earlier, they do a great job of explaining that the category is attractive. Where they don't do a good enough job um, is explaining how they will win within that category, how their product is different and how they will succeed. Um, they right. spend, spend too much time talking about if we could do this, it's a big business. Yep. You know, and, and a lot of times you agree, um, but, but not enough detail about, okay, and the reason we're going to succeed is this. And I acknowledge that in some cases at a preliminary stage, they want to keep a little powder dry and not explain their secret sauce to you two directly until you have more conversations. <laughs> and that's okay, but you know, there's yeah. a balance there. You have to see enough of it to have some comfort. But in other cases, you know, they have become, I guess I would say, seduced by the size of the opportunity without really being challenging to themselves about, got it, um, that's a big opportunity, but can we do it better than somebody else can? And that's the part, I, if I could leave one idea for people to focus on, as you're putting your pitch deck together, as you're sweating those details before you get up in front of the VC or whoever you're talking to, really make sure that that piece sings, that really is as clean and as tight as it possibly can be, because that's what people really want to know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really where the focus needs to be, the rest of it, you know. And, and in many cases, as you mentioned, Les, too, when you're coming in to look at somebody in a category, you guys already know a lot about that category. Or, right. or you wouldn't be looking at that in the first place. So it's yeah. like, I, I don't, I don't need to know the probiotics is going to be the next best thing or how big it is. I already got that. I don't know about yeah. where yeah, in that, in that mix, which is, which is very true. Yes. I, I think it was because one of the things coming from larger CPG uh, in my background is that, you know, finance and trying to get people interested in investing was ne never part of my wheelhouse ever. I mean, you know, you had budgets. I worked with, you know, and, and are you going to spend the budget with me or somebody else? But mm -hmm. it's, um, but this idea of, okay, we've got to show how we're going to pay this money back. And then it has been, a, it was, you know, over the last like seven years has been a very steep learning curve, but one of the more enjoyable things, because it was new. It was like, okay, let's, let's talk about how this works. And I've worked on a lot of decks with people and I understand exactly what you're talking about because there is a tendency to do that. Or uh, my, my, my other thing I see an awful lot of, unfortunately, is people who have a mission that they want to accomplish with the growth of the product. And the deck is about the mission, not about the product. That's a really good comment as well, Steve. You know, we're all for, and I mean this sincerely, we believe in missions, you know, the SP company does, I do. But, you know, that's got to be, as you're talking to an investor, uh, that's got to be supported by you know, why this will be a good investment. Um, and you're right, sometimes it is too focused on the high order mission and not enough focused on the operational, you know, strength of the organization, which is going to deliver on that mission. Yeah, so they can go forward. So yeah. um, in, in terms of the, of the kind of the split up between what you're doing, talk to us a little bit about how you operate in terms of looking at it, it, at once ventures and and again you have obviously a staff there and whatever else but how, how do you how do you put together okay what are we going to do this month what are we going to do this quarter um you know what's kind of the day-to-day -day operation of it sure it's been a bit disrupted as everyone else says by the pandemic but uh 
you know, we, we, um, you know, we, we judge ourselves on kind of a couple of different attributes, things that we want to get accomplished. One is, uh, you know, um, the strength of the pipeline we're looking at. You know that, you know, venture investing is a business where you look at 50 to 100 deals a year and probably invest in two or three. So you have to have a very big pipeline in, in order to have quality investments coming in, you know, uh, on that, that pacing every year. And so we're constantly, um, you know, uh, going to, well, right now, virtually conferences like uh, NCN, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully attend Expo East in person, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah. It's a little bit out of our hands. Our fingers. Yeah. Um, and others, you know, BevNet and so forth. So we, we try and attend those conferences virtually and listen to the pitches. Um, our, our sister company, Pharmavite, holds an innovation day where they invite a curated group of uh, companies in 10 or 12, and uh, we'll also attend that and hear those. So, you know, we're, we're always out there stimulating uh, pipeline um, growth. Second thing we do is um, I think we've learned uh, time and time again that success in this business is partly based on being viewed as a good partner and a good collaborator, both by entrepreneurs, but also by other funds. And so uh, we spend time and we'll continue to spend time getting to know other funds uh, because a lot, of the, a lot of the investments you see are not a single investor, as I'm sure you've observed. There'll yeah. be a lead yeah. investor, but, but the, yeah. the lead investor will look to syndicate that investment with three, four, five other like-minded investors. And, uh, you know, in the case of the first investment that we made uh, most recently, you know, we're, we're partnering with uh, several firms, a company called Chivas out of London, but also... DSM, the ingredient manufacturer, and uh, Continental Grain. Uh, and they're all three are sophisticated investors, have their own networks, um, have their own deal flow. And by, you know, by co-investing with them, not only do we have great comfort that this you know, has a high chance of success, but it will also facilitate a closer relationship with them and in turn open doors uh, you know, to other opportunities, either with them or with other funds that they're familiar with. And so um, we're, because we're still a new fund, we're very much in the process of trying to network. Uh, I think I saw somewhere on your letterhead that it was, you have a statement, something like if you're not networking, you're not working. Um, that's, that's right. That's, yeah, right. That's, that's pretty much true in venture capital from what we see. It's yeah. that a lot of it comes down to you've got to be, rep, you know, you've got to be known and you've got to have a reputation of being a straight shooter who you know, does what he, he or she says they're going to do. And, uh, and is a good partner to work with both with the entrepreneur and with the other investors. And so we were spending a lot of time on that as well. And if folks want to find out more about Once Ventures, how can they get more information? Sure. There's a, uh, so the website is literally onceventures.com. So O-N-C-E ventures.com, all one word, except for the .com parts. Um, and, uh, you know, on there, we describe our backgrounds. We describe the kind of businesses that we're interested in. We describe a little bit about our parent company, Otsuka, because it's not a, a brand name in, in North America that people would recognize. It is in Asia, but not North America. Right. Um, and as we, you know, as we start to populate the page with investments that we make over the next six months or so, you know, people will start to see a bit of a trend as well as to the kind of things that we do, the kind of company that we keep. But that's, uh, you know, that's to come right now. We're still just, we just closed our first one and we'll probably make a couple more between now and the calendar. But uh, they, can, they can start there. And then um, if they want to contact us, there's information on the page about how to contact us. And, uh, you know, we will, we will respond to every uh, 
contact that we get. We will not always respond that we're interested, of course, because not everything will be in scope, but we will, we hope to show the courtesy to everybody who contacts us that we will respond. And if there, if there's a reason why it's not in scope, we'll tell them why it's not in scope. Uh, Les, let me ask you real quick about, um, you, you talked briefly about the effect of the pandemic and we're sort of, it, it, sort of, I say mid pandemic, cause who knows at this point, but clearly it, it helped the supplement business. Um, but are you also looking at an overall greater awareness about health and what people are putting into their bodies based on the fact that we had a plague? Yeah, uh, we sure are. And, um, you know, we see that in the supplements business, we see that same data uh, from data. You know, when I said go to their board meetings, they, you know, bring some of the good data that they've got about people's commitment to eating better. And, you know, they have not gone information about exercise habits, et cetera. And, you know, I think um, I'd make two comments about that, having worked in this kind of business for a while. Um, one is, you know, people overstate it a little bit. Um, oftentimes they, they talk about what they intend to do when it comes to health rather than what they do do. Right. But even, even if you filter that out, Steve, I think there is genuine intentionality there. And I think, um, you know, if the pandemic had been a month, I think everybody would have gone right back to what they did before. But given it's gone on so long, um, I really do believe that a lot of the habits have changed from there. Just as, you know, I go to the grocery store when, at times because I want to see what brands are on the shelf. Of course. Do I go to the grocery store because I want to personally select the bottle of Tide that I bring them? No, no, I get Instacart to do that. And I think, right. or Amazon or wherever you like, I think a lot of those habits have changed permanently. So I think the move to health, whether it's buying a Peloton, whether it's eating more plant-based food, whether it's whatever, um, taking supplements, I do believe um, it may not sustain itself at the peak that we saw during the pandemic, but I think it's going to sustain itself at a new higher level than what it was prior to the pandemic. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. I think that's where it's going. I've actually been, in some cases, working with clients, particularly on the e-commerce side, that you know it went you know absolutely crazy, of course, um, during the height of the pandemic, but it's gone back. But it hasn't gone back to where we might have thought it was going to go. Yeah, maintained a lot more, which um, is is surprising. But I think you're right. It's also the length of time, and I forget what do they say. It's six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it takes to make a habit. Well, we were <laughs> we were way on. We're past well past that. that. Yep. Yeah, it has that. So uh, you know that certainly certainly works. It works good. You know, in that. So uh, you know, um, last one of the things. Um, that we do here is we we try to get our our, our experts and and especially people who've had um, breadth and depth in CPG to share um, usually one word or phrase or topic something really important that you think entrepreneurs out there in the audience should know. Can you do that? Yeah, um, I would use the word simplify, Steve. Um, ah, yeah. I, what I, what I um, what I would observe, at least over the course of my career, and I've had the privilege of working in Europe and Asia and, and North America, across a variety of brands um, and categories, is that um, when you look back critically at a year, let's say, you know, you do your year-end review prior to writing the budget for the next uh, fiscal yes. year, um, there's a lot of things happened and there was a lot of activity and a lot of it was really well-intentioned, but there was probably two or three things in any one year, if you have a good year, that actually made a significant difference. And the rest of it was well-intentioned, created activity, um, may have gotten people excited, et cetera, but really didn't move the needle. 
And what I see um, being very powerful is if you can get the leadership team to focus on the two or three things that are mission critical in a year, and then have the courage and the discipline not to pursue the other things. And that's hard because if you take it um, kind of unilaterally, I guess, or um, and say, well, wouldn't it be nice to do this other project? The answer is going to be yes. It's not a bad idea. Of course, it's a good idea. The issue is no project can be done without taking resources from some other project. It's just the way it is. And so what I've learned over time is I really, really believe in simplicity and having a couple of things to do in a year that are mission critical and then being pretty ruthless about not doing a bunch of things too. And um, it's a struggle. Some people buy into that thinking completely and get it. Others feel great comfort in having a list of 15 things that they want to accomplish in the next fiscal year. Um, but I guess having had the privilege of seeing a lot of different businesses and a lot of different industries, um, I, would, I come out of it saying, if I could lock into two or three things that I think really can move the needle in the next year and put my focus against it, the rest of it's going to be noise. The rest of it's going to cancel itself out. Some will be good. Some will be not so good. And it'll just take up a bunch of time. So and the rest of the, yeah, the rest will be momentum. So we don't have to worry yeah. about it. Yeah. So uh, simplify as much as you can would be my advice. Absolutely. And that's, that's great advice. lesson. it's true because uh, I know it's not grammatically correct, but uh, money is finite, but time is hyper finite. So, you know, and, and, you know, in that period of time, you want to get at least the major things accomplished. And, and that's part of that's focus. I mean, part of that is, you know, staying on, staying on the game. So really, really appreciate that. And appreciate you taking the time and stuff to be with us today. It's been a great chat and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. I want to talk when you've made a couple other acquisitions, we can look at and say, Oh yeah, I had your, you had your eye on that one. Sure. I'd love to do that, Steve. Thank you for taking the time with me as well. I enjoyed it. No problem. And I want to thank all the rest of you for joining us as well on the Next Level Brands podcast. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, health, and wellness, or even small goods, you should be part of the Next Level Brands community, education, resources, workshops, founder coaching, and networking. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's, nextlevelbrands.com, what you need to know to grow. This is Steve Clear, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.